Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Moore Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m., right here at Blog Talk Radio, 347-327-9849. If you'd like to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. Got quite a program lined up today. In about 10 minutes, we'll be joined by Michael Connolly. He is uh, uh, an attorney, an investigator. He's going to be talking about the Federal Aviation Administration authorizing government agencies to deploy drones over the United States, what that means. At the bottom of the hour, David Pakman will be with us. He's a young, progressive radio talk show host out in western Massachusetts who has been making quite a stir in talk radio lately. And we'll hear from David in terms of his reflection on the debate last night between the two vice presidential nominees, Joe Biden and Paul Ryan. At 1 o'clock, we'll be joined by Dr. Gene Youngblood. He is the author of a very powerful book, which is Is Islam Tolerant? A Christian View of the Quran. So, quite a, quite, we're going to get into some real uh, tough issues today. 347-327-9849 is the number. 347-327-9849. So what's the deal with the debate last night? I watched the debate, and uh, I put some of my reflections up on uh, the blog site. Chuck Moore speaks. I'll read it briefly. Was Paul Ryan bullied? The debate between vice presidential nominees Joe Biden and Paul Ryan reminded me of the many debates I've had with leftists over the years, debates I've had both on my radio show and privately. Left-wingers think nothing of lying and playing dirty, because they believe in power and in the principle that anything goes to keep and strengthen that power. I read a post-debate tweet, for example, from a left-wing talk show host who wrote that Biden creamed Ryan. And from the perspective of the left, he's right. Biden did everything he could to dominate and to stop Ryan from talking, including constant rude interruptions, as well as assuming the various mannerisms that I've seen leftists take on in situations like this, including smirking, smiling, cooing, gurgling, giggling, and throwing out weird slang expressions. In other words, in true revolutionary fashion, Biden jumped ugly on Ryan. Ryan, like most conservatives, is a normal person who focused on issues and statistics. But this is where most conservatives fall short in the field of battle. As difficult as it is, conservatives have to be prepared to play as dirty as the left, and Ryan was all too decent. Thus, Ryan forfeited the field to the bully Biden. This doesn't mean that Ryan lost the debate or that his performance in any way negatively affected the Romney-Ryan momentum. That remains to be seen. Hopefully, the voter will look beyond what the media is focused on, which is the style and appearance of each of the candidates and the contest. Hopefully, the voter will ask which side they trust more, to deal with the looming problems of the coming years, such as the effects of the exploding debt 
and deficit and the nuclear developments in Iran. So there you have it posted up on Chuck Moore Speaks. Uh, you're welcome to comment, of course. Welcome aboard at 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849, or you can email me at chuckmorse4 at gmail.com. So what, what were the issues? Putting aside the, um, the revolutionary uh, tactics of Biden and stuff that reminded me, as I said in the debate, of so many um, arguments I've had over the years with leftists who try to control you, they try to manage you, they try, and they use ugly various tactics, giggling, snickling, snur- you know, all these noises that they make to try to distract there's, you know, and, and as this tweeter said, you know, they cream you in that way. It's very difficult. I, I, I felt sympathy for Ryan. I've been through this myself so many times that, uh, you know, it's just it's hard, even for the most experienced conservative, to, to kind of step into. You have to, you know, there was an expression that the late Senator Joseph R. McCarthy said, uh, being, having come from a farming background up in Wisconsin, he said, you know, if you're going to go into the – you're going to chase a skunk out of the barn, you're going to get some stink on you. You know, it's, it's just that simple. I mean, th- this is going into the snake pit. Uh, it's very difficult, no matter how conscious you are, it is very difficult to prepare for that. There are very few people that can do it who are not on the left. And, uh, you know, it's easy to, you know, look at it after the fact and to, to kind of, uh, you know, handicap it. But to go through it, to be there, look, I went through it. I did it with Barney Frank. I mean, uh, talk about a jumping ugly. You know, it's very difficult to stand up to it. It just is because, yeah, as I've said, conservatism is basically the way people are. It's natural to the human being. And it's not this quest for total power. The conservative is not driven by this idea that they have to win, that they have to conquer and they have to destroy and annihilate the opposition in order to preserve their power. And they do it righteously. They believe in what they're doing. They believe that they are right. And as such, they're justified in taking any means necessary. That's not how conservatives are wired. So it's very difficult for conservative. It's like almost two completely different means of communication occurring at once. And I think that regardless of how well we can and, and come to understand how the left operates, when you're out there in the middle of this battle, one-on-one, plus he had Raditz there working for him, you know, it was really a two-against-one. That was pretty obvious. Um, you, you know, it's it's a tough thing to challenge. And, uh, you know, you can look back and say, gee, I wish Ryan had done this and I wish he had done that. The only main thing that I wish he had done right at the beginning was when uh, Biden was flat out lying and so obviously lying about what happened in Benghazi, that why, that the administration had covered up the fact, for whatever reason, that this was a terrorist assault. And then he smeared the, the intelligence department by saying, well, we only know what they told us. The intelligence had reported within 24 hours that the assault in Benghazi, which resulted in the murder of four Americans, including the ambassador, Christopher Stevens, that that had been a planned, organized terrorist attack. That simple. It had nothing to do with this stupid book. In fact, to bring up that book as a blame for that 
actually is a smear against conservatives because conservatives have criticized Islam. Therefore, it kind of you know it kind of is a classic double play in the left wing handbook. You know, we're going to reflect blame from us because we did not prepare properly for this attack. And it has been, st- and also the other lie that Biden engaged in was that um, the ambassador himself and other people in, uh, at that uh, compound in Benghazi had asked the State Department for for uh, more assistance, for more security, and that had been denied. Uh, he lied about that. But putting that aside, by by you know deflecting the blame for their own incompetence, and then saying that it was the fault of some conservative, quote-unquote, person criticizing Islam, that that's what's to blame? It's, 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 it's a double win for them, I suppose, in their playbook. But, of course, the third casualty is the fact that it weakens the country and it weakens those who are opposed to radical Islam, including most of the Islamic world. Because it, tell, it tells us that if we say anything that's in any way critical of Islam, then we can expect missiles blown up blowing up our embassies and killing our ambassadors and ourselves. So, you know, this is a very sinister situation. I hope that uh, the American people understand that this is not about which candidate did better or which candidate won or who's up. You know, this isn't a boxing match, you know. We have two guys stripped to the waist and hitting each other with gloves until one of them falls over. This is much bigger than that. This has to do with where we want the country to go, and I think that on two points, people will ask themselves, hopefully, as Election Day nears, do they trust – and by the way, neither side is telling the full truth. Let, let's be clear about that. But which side is the more competent side in terms of dealing with two upcoming crises next year, crises that are quite real? The first one is the fact that we have a $16 trillion debt and deficit. Deficit's $1.5 trillion. That's something that we crossed the $16 trillion threshold a little over a week ago. Which side is going to do a better job of dealing with that? American people may not care about that so much. They don't know anything about it. It all seems quite abstract. But I can tell you, I mean, based upon even a cursory examination of history and of economy, that this has huge implications and that both sides are going to have to engage in substantial cuts. That's just a fact. One side is more honest about it than the other, the Republicans, and they're taking political heat for that. It's easy for the Democrats to lie about it and just say, oh, yes, we're going to continue building the government and we're going to tax the rich in order to get money, which I think Ryan actually did a pretty good job of showing that that's not going to be enough to not only reduce the deficit, but uh, to even keep the government going for a few days, even if they did it even if they confiscated and expropriated you know, more than half of their wealth, it wouldn't be enough. And the other issue is, of course, the nuclear development in Iran. Which side is going to be more respected on the international stage when it comes to standing up to terrorism and the development of uh, nuclear proliferation in the hands of the Ayatollahs of Iran and elsewhere? I think that people would conclude that as flawed as they are, and as imperfect as they are, the Republican side will be the better side. Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney are not coming out with specifics in terms of where they will cut, because that's a very difficult thing to do politically. I understand that. 
uh, you know, you're going to PO a lot of people if you do that. And they're politicians. They don't want to to do that until after the election. I get that. But the fact is that at least they're telling the truth that they're going to have to be cuts. And that's something that the Democrats are completely ignoring. It's going to have to happen or else we're going to go the way of not just Greece and, and, and other European economies, but historically the way of the Spanish Empire, the way of the Bourbon kings of France. You know, you spend too much money and the government implodes, the society implodes, and there's massive poverty. Uh, we've already seen it start in this country. So both sides are going to have to cut. The only question is which side not only is the more honest of the two, and I would argue that the Republican side is, even though they're not fully honest, and which side, once this happens next year, and it is coming up, it will start to happen next year. Which side can we trust to do the cuts in a way that is more careful and less stressful on, on people? It's not going to be a happy thing to do. It's not pleasant, but it's going to have to be done. I would argue that it's the Republican side because the Democratic side is not going to do it. They're not going to engage in the cuts, and the result's going to be an implosion, in which case then we're going to really see serious cuts, believe me. There's going to be, you know, the Social Security could be canceled. We, we, you know, we, we can't imagine the kind of cuts that will take place if there's, a, if there's a, a, a bankruptcy on the national level. And that's where we're going. So I think that this is a time when more conservative government is, is called for. Whether you're liberal or conservative, politically, socially, or whatnot, there is just a reality check on the time in which we're living. We cannot continue as a government to borrow from the rich bankers of Wall Street, most of whom are left-wing and liberal, and pay them the kind of interest we're paying and expect to continue going on. We can't continue with that. We need to have an administration come in that understands economy and understands reality, really, and then is willing to make the difficult decisions with regard to how to deal with this crisis. And also, we need to deal with the international growth of terror around the world. It's not just the murder of our four American uh, men in Benghazi, including one ambassador. It also is the, the nuclear proliferation in Iran. It is the civil war in Syria and the fact that that is spilling over to surrounding countries. It is the you know, how the withdrawal from, from, uh, from Afghanistan is going to happen. And I think both sides understand that it is going to happen. It's just how. I would argue that the better side on that also is the Republican side, based upon what we've seen over the past four years. And by the way, there's an interesting article in the World Net Daily, uh, published by Tom Vallely, who is a military man and who is on the inside of military matters, who points out that Barack Obama had nothing to do, you know, very little to do, except at the last minute, with the bin Laden operation, that in fact the State Department and the Defense Department had asked him several times if they could go forward with taking out bin Laden, and he had said no, and that in this particular case, it was really Leon Panetta and Hillary Clinton, to give credit where it's due, who, who launched the attack on bin Laden and who decided that they didn't tell Obama until the planes were already entering into Pakistani airspace. So, 
you know, putting aside the fact that there's an insubordinate aspect to that in a technical sense, Bin Laden, I mean, Obama didn't really want to do it. He didn't have the will to do it. But, of course, he took credit for it, and I understand that. It's just I think we ought to put these things into some historic perspective so we could better get a better look at how the inside of the administration works, especially since uh, Obama is actually putting this piece up as a cornerstone in his justification for reelection. So on that note, I believe we'll, our guests will be joining us shortly. Let me take a brief break. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. And my guest is Michael Connolly, U.S. Army veteran, project director with the United States Justice Foundation, the USJF. Michael, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Well, it's good to be with you. Michael, I, I only have a few minutes today. I want to do a more extensive interview as uh, you know in coming weeks because I've got so much going on. But let, let's get right to the issue then. The uh, Federal uh, Aviation Administration, you say, has authorized the U.S. government to deploy drones over the United States. Is that right? That, that's correct. Uh, they are going to deploy a large number of drones, and they're setting up uh, thousands of flight paths for these drones to fly. Now, how how do you know this, Michael? Well, basically, the information has come uh, from the FAA, and the uh, we know that they are setting up a flight pass, and the government has been talking for some time now about deploying drones to supposedly help local law enforcement. But they're not talking about just putting them in the air when something's going on, like say there's a bank robbery and the people are, are running uh, in a car, and they put a drone up to try to track the car. They're talking about routine flights over major cities in this country, over major population areas, where they are going to be just randomly monitoring people. They're going. To, these drones are very sophisticated. They can uh, pick up communications. They can listen in on phone calls. They can monitor what we're doing on the Internet. They can do all this, and they do it without a warrant. They do it without any probable cause to think that you or I are committing some kind of crime or planning some kind of crime. They just want to know what we're doing. They want to know what we're, we're doing online, for example. Are we ordering ammunition? Are we looking at websites? Uh, that uh, are pro-Constitution and pro-individual liberties. You know, that's one of the things that they had put on their uh, possible watch list for potential terrorists is people who are uh, for limited government and for constitutional rights or potential yeah. terrorists. Just like I'm a veteran, I'm also on the list. I remember that. Uh, Janet Napolitano a couple of years ago came out with a list that included uh, people who have conservative Values and um, this is a nightmare. I mean, this reminds me of the, a movie that was made many years ago, starring Mel Gibson, called uh, called Black Helicopters or something like that. I don't know if you remember. A conspiracy. I mean, these are the black helicopters that the uh, right's been talking about. This is uh, these are monitoring man unmanned vehicles that are going to be flying over us and uh, and spying on us basically. Now uh, you say that they ostensibly, at least uh, in their public stance are going to be engaging in law enforcement activities for local uh, law enforcement. 
Has local law enforcement requested this? In, in, some, place, in some places they have. In some places uh, uh, cities uh, have requested it. I know they are flying them along the borders already with Canada and with Mexico, supposedly right. looking for illegals. And uh, the trouble is Obama won't let the Border Patrol arrest anybody that's coming in here illegally. Uh, if they, they do arrest them, he makes them let them go. So there has to be other purposes, too. And some local law enforcement are requesting this, but this is not a conspiracy in that the federal government is doing this on its own. In addition to what local law enforcement may have requested for specific purposes, they're authorizing these flights constantly over the entire United States. We look at it as, as potential intimidation. They're trying to intimidate the American people by letting them know they're going to be listening in on what we're doing. They're going to be monitoring our Internet use. These things are very sophisticated. They can pick up a license plate of, a, of your car, and they can follow your car uh, when you travel to find out where you're going, what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole thing is – and these things could also very easily be armed with weapons right. and lethal weapons. In fact, so they are if they go over Afghanistan. Yeah, they've, they've been using Afghanistan and Pakistan, and sure. they, they're armed with missiles. They can be armed with uh, uh, other types of weapons, and they can be used to for devastating effects. And the question Absolutely. is why. Uh, other than the fact that they want to intimidate the American people and they want to spy on us, there is no other reason to be putting this many drones in the air on just random flight paths where they are not specifically targeting uh, some type of uh, criminal activity. Well, no, I, I, the way I see it is that there's no reason to put drones in the air at all unless it's very specifically uh, prescribed for a specific purpose, approved by a judge, you know, approved by a community. I mean, I don't know if I have a problem with using drones, for example, as you say, to monitor the border. I think that might be a good idea. Um, you know, I hope that they, you say that Obama won't then enforce the law. They should, but... This is something else. We have uh, a situation where the government is now sending drones randomly over over cities and over territory inside the United States. We don't know they're doing it. We don't know if they're up there. We don't know what they're doing up there. And uh, I think that I, I would hope that constitutionally there would be some kind of a challenge here. Um, and yet, at the same time, I believe that it was in 2009 that Barack Obama expanded uh, domestic surveillance by saying that uh, it was legal for the government to listen in on people's cell phone conversations. You know, I mean, I remember, I mean, George Bush was racked over the coals for listening in to conversations coming in from hostile nations overseas to, uh, to uh, you know, American uh, potential terror cells inside the United States. I remember this was a big scandal. I mean, the New York Times did a series on this. But, I mean, Obama obviously has expanded it to include Americans. I mean, this isn't a situation where someone is suspect. This is random. I mean, they could listen in on anything they want, and no one's saying anything about it. Well, actually, we are. The U.S. Justice you Foundation. Are, and, I don't uh, hear the is, New York Times pounding its chest on this one. No, no of course not, because they're in favor of it. Uh, they're in favor of intimidating the American people into obeying Obama and to reelecting Obama and to doing whatever is necessary to basically destroy our Constitution. Even further, you've had a recent announcement by the government that they're going to be monitoring social media sites 
They're going to be monitoring emails. They're going to be collecting data on individuals without a warrant, without any probable cause that they're involved in criminal activity or may be involved in criminal activity. And they're going to take all this data and they're going to store it uh, for at least five years. So huh. I know they're listening in on my talk radio show and your talk radio show. They're monitoring our, who our guests are. They're monitoring what we have to say, and they're storing that data. Now, that's fine. You know, they they have a right to listen in because this is public airways, but when it comes to emails, that's a different matter. I do not believe that they have a constitutional right to monitor my emails because those are sent out privately to individuals uh, that I know, and yet it's just one thing after another. The drones are just the tip of the iceberg. Well, you know, maybe this is a situation, Michael, where we could effect a national movement of civil disobedience in that um, Americans of all political stripes, left, right, and center, can begin to send out emails and look at controversial websites and kind of jam up their system. You know, I mean, this is uh, you know the kind of stuff that uh, the late, great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was recommending be done, you know, kind of uh, nonviolent um, protests and opposition. You know, let's let's all take a look at at uh, you know whatever website they're targeting. You know, have millions of hits on that website. Let them gather up the information and and just uh, jam up the works. Well, I think that's a good idea, and you know we have to understand that they are uh, going to be doing this on a regular basis. They have said they're going to do it. Even the ACLU has come out and and objected to the idea that they government wants to take over the internet. Uh, right. They couldn't pass it through Congress. Obama said he's going to do it anyway through a U.N. treaty, and he's going to do that U.N. treaty by what he calls executive action, which does not exist in the Constitution. But he says under executive action, he can take, take control of the Internet under this treaty. He does not have to think. He thinks he does not have to send it to the Senate for ratification by a two-thirds majority, which the Constitution clearly calls for. Right. And in addition to him having control of content, Internet content in this country, there would be a panel set up by the U.N. that would probably include the Russians, the Chinese, and possibly even the Iranians. They would have control over Internet content. So we have a, a situation here where the American people are not only being monitored by our own government but and contr- controlled, and their attempts to control the Internet content and what we watch and what we look at and what we read but they're going to let foreign nations get involved in doing the same thing, just like they're doing in their own countries. Well, you know, I think not to get political here, Michael Connolly, but I think what you're talking about is exactly the agenda of a second term of the Obama administration. I mean, we've already seen in the first term um, executive orders, including one that would give the president power to control all means of production in the case of some vaguely defined emergency. In other words, martial law that he signed in March of this year. Uh, We saw an illegal war in Libya in which uh, the Congress was not consulted. Um, It it was unprecedented in terms of uh, the level of that. Uh, John Boehner, the Secretary of uh, the, uh, you know, the Speaker of the House, was called by Obama a week after the uh, attack was launched. And when when Congress Senator Jeff Sessions of, of, uh, of, of Alabama asked Leon Panetta, Secretary of Defense, where he got the authorization for this war. Panetta said, well, we got it from the uh, from NATO. And, uh, you know, uh, Sessions, well, you have to come to Congress. And uh, basically Panetta just blew him off and said, no, we don't. We, author- we answered to NATO. 
So I think that it's safe to say that in the second term, and uh, Dick Morris actually has a new book about this that, that's pretty good, that there's going to be taxation by the uh, through the United Nations uh, and run around Congress. There's going to be various UN resolutions signed, and that uh, it, it's more than just an issue of the loss of national sovereignty and a move toward one world government, which is exactly what it is. It's also an issue of the loss of individual sovereignty and individual rights, which I think should concern all Americans, whether you're on the left or the right. I agree. In 1957, the United States Supreme Court ruled specifically that any treaty, international treaty, signed by the president, and even if it was ratified by the Senate, cannot take precedence over the U.S. Constitution, cannot take away our individual rights. Yet here we have Obama talking about signing the U.N. Small Arms Treaty, again, bypassing the Senate, uh, if he can't get it ratified there, and going ahead and letting the U.N. supersede and override the Second Amendment to our Constitution and start taking away our weapons. It's all part of a pattern of anybody who's setting himself up as a dictator. Uh, the first thing, for example, that Adolf Hitler did when he took office as chancellor in Germany was take control of the national health care system and take it away from private individuals. Then he went after the weapons to disarm the population. He succeeded in doing that, and we know from history what happened thereafter. So we're seeing the same pattern here. The third factor is that he uh, basically suspended the Constitution and declared a national emergency after the Reichstag fire, which was just some kind of an event that that was used to justify – this total move toward power, and, and there could be something like that. I mean, you, you can never tell what, what might happen. So, you know, those are lessons that need to be learned. Uh, Michael Connolly, I want to thank you for joining me. I'm sorry that it's a short show today. I'll have you back for a, a more in-depth discussion when the schedule clears. But uh, But thanks so much. It's been very interesting. Well, thank you for having me. Where can people look at a website or get more information, Michael? Uh, usjf.net that's the uh, project director for the u.s justice foundation and we deal with constitutional issues all the time and i also have a blog so they can go go find that too so thank you for having me on thank you michael we'll be right back we've got david packman coming up please stay tuned If you'd like to join the program, Chuck Moore Speaks, 347-327-9849. Let me welcome aboard David Packman. He is a progressive radio talk show host, online and terrestrial radio. He's out in western Massachusetts. David, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Oh, thanks for having me. David, uh, give give me a thumbnail observation with regard to uh, specifically the debate last night between the two vice presidential nominees. Well, the debate was fascinating. It was a complete turnaround from what we saw in the first presidential debate. Uh, Joe Biden came out completely opposite what President Obama did. Instead of kind of standing by, 
grimacing, looking down at his podium every time his opponent told a lie. Uh, Joe Biden kind of instant fact-checking Paul Ryan in a way that I can't remember happening in a major presidential or VP debate in the last 20 years. Well, you know, I think that it certainly was an aggressive debate on both sides, and uh, I think that Biden really jumped ugly on on Ryan, and Ryan was oh, I not. I disagree with you more. Okay, but Ryan, I mean, that's you're right. That's my opinion. And with the smirks and the giggles and the snorts, and Ryan was not up to it. He didn't really. He was just too focused on, you know, technical things and issues. He didn't really allow himself to be interrupted. Apparently, eighty nine times. But at the very beginning yeah, of the I mean, debate, the thing about that, Chuck, is you know we've gotten into this mode where uh, we've had for years people claiming from the right and you know Paul Ryan's Tea Party supporting ilk saying the president's Kenyan, Muslim, baby killing, gay, communist, socialist, Marxist, radical who hates America, and all of a sudden those on the right are saying, listen, Joe Biden was rude for laughing. It's just not going to fly. It's nonsense. People realize. Paul Ryan was telling lies. He even re- resurrected the death panel lie of the year. And Joe Biden said, these ideas don't warrant respect. These ideas are ridiculous. And I'm going to laugh, and I'm going to tell you why. I, I, I completely disagree with you on my view here. Well, look, David, look, this is a, a tough campaign, and there's a lot of nastiness on both sides. I mean, you know, Mitt Romney's been called a felon, and he's been called responsible for murdering a man's wife and, and other things. And we can certainly – I don't think you or I want to do that type of stuff. I don't like that. I mean, even though it's out there, I mean, I, I would rather talk about issues specifically. And one of those was that at the very beginning of the discussion, when the issue of the Benghazi attack was brought up, right? Um, I think that Biden was – was not, I, don't, I don't like to use the word lying, but he certainly said something that is very different than what has now been said by the – American State Department and uh, Defense Department, which was that um, they did understand that this was a terrorist assault within 24 hours of the incident and that they were notified before the assault by Ambassador Stevens that they needed more security, and he was told flat out that he wouldn't get it. And I think that when Biden brought that up and said, oh, no, we did not know, and we're waiting for an investigation, and that – you know, the, the, we 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 weren't notified by intelligence. If if Ryan had been a little tougher, he would have pointed out that this was not the case, and uh, and he didn't. He just sat there and kind of rolled on about uh, you know in his very kind of mild mannered factual way. And uh, I mean, I, you know, it's very difficult for to, for you or I to second guess a situation like that because because we're not in it with such high stakes. But um, and I think that Ryan showed himself to be a bit green. He was not. He, he certainly. I mean, Biden's been around for 35 years in in the U.S. Senate. But uh, but I wish he had had challenged that. And there were some other things as well. Yeah, but there's a pro- here's the problem with that. You know, the the focus that little the, the little exchange you just referred to refers to this retrospective view where Romney Ryan, rightly so, because they aren't the ones who have been in the White House for the last four years. A lot of what they have to campaign on is criticizing things that President Obama and or Joe Biden did. Now, when we want to look at the facts, there's a reason that you didn't mention 
that Paul Ryan didn't get involved in that the way maybe you would have liked him to, which is Paul Ryan is one of the reasons, Paul Ryan's vote is one of the reasons there wasn't more security at the consulate. Uh, And remember, we're talking about a, a consulate here, not an embassy, which a lot of people on the right also seem to be missing. Paul Ryan and fellow Mormon uh, Jason Chaffetz, who was involved in the hearings a couple of days ago, they all are being critical that there wasn't enough security. But they voted right. to prevent the funding from being there to increase security. So they, well, they are completely intellectually void on this well, issue. Well, David, I think that that was brought up by Biden. He pointed that out, and that's true. They did vote against increasing funding for the for defense and that. But nevertheless – the administration could have still, within their funding and within their function, especially as 9-11 approached, they could have beefed up security, especially when, you know, they had the money, even though there was cutbacks. And especially when, wait a minute, especially when Ambassador Stevens. It's the libertarian right wing that's saying there is no money. This idea of just finding the money, right, essentially printing the money, that's the exact Thing that the right is campaigning against. So to say, well, listen, the right has been for four years now through the Tea Party and the House Republicans saying we have money for nothing and actually preventing money from being available. Say, well, listen, the Democrats could have gone around that and just made the money available. It, it's well, bogus. look, David, totally I mean, by the way, my guest is David Pakman. He's a talk show host uh, from out in Western Massachusetts. You know, we can, you and I can debate whether or not there should be cutbacks in defense and, and whether that's or not, not there should be cutbacks. Wait a minute, whether or not there should be cutbacks in the State Department or whatever. But the fact is that even with the cutbacks, the State Department has enough personnel and they have enough money that they could have allocated a little extra security in our embassies as 9 11 comes up. But let me ask you something but else because I, I want to move on. I want to move on to another one of your comments, David. talking about an embassy. This is the exact. All right, fine. Whatever it is, a, a consulate. You're Thank you. are talking about an embassy. The incident happened at a consulate. Are you suggesting Thank you. All that there right. was Thank the money for, lying around? Thank you for pointing that out. It's not an embassy, and it's a consulate. consulate? Thank you for pointing it out. It's not an embassy. It's a consulate. Four men are dead, including the ambassador. Now, David, let me ask you this. You mentioned that somebody associated with Romney is a fellow Mormon. What is that about? Uh, well, Jason Chaffetz, who is the, the, one of these individuals who is leading this witch hunt to try to point the incident in Benghazi specifically to Barack Obama, when really it's an, it's, it's an administrative issue, it's a question of budgets and the State Department and so many other and things. And allocations. He is very specifically trying to make this an Obama what issue. What does his being a Mormon have to do with this, though, David? Not. So he, what and, is and his... it's, just, it's interesting to note that he is also, he is also Mormon. Why is that interesting, David? Well, it's interesting because when we look at a number of different companies, including my personal contacts at Bain & Company and a number of other places, there is what appears to be a camaraderie and working together that exists uh, within the Mormon faith. And specifically at yeah. Bain & Company, my contacts Would you say there, Harry Reid is a I, part I, of that? He's a Mormon. I'm sorry, what was that? Would you, would you say that, uh, Demo- uh, that Democratic, liberal, Senate, the majority speaker Harry Reid is a part of this? Do you know he's a Mormon? No, I wouldn't say he's a part of it. No, you, he is a Mormon. He's a That's Mormon, a fact, yes, but David. he's not a part of this conspiracy to elect Oh, I see. Romney. So then this is a Mormon conspiracy? I no, mean, I David, would you say that if all these people were Jewish? I mean, would you uh, say, well, there's a lot that. of Jews yeah, working Jewish, at Bain Capital and they that, have camaraderie? Kind of the <laughs> it's not a trick. I'm asking you flat out, and I'm a Jew, by the way. 
Are yeah. you saying that if we had a lot of Jews working at Bain Capital and they had camaraderie, this would be some kind of a conspiracy? Because that seems to be what you're saying about Mormons. No, no. I used the term conspiracy once and it was a joke. So let's back off of the word. Well, I don't think it's very funny. You know, especially when you're making a charge that these that there's some kind of a camaraderie amongst Mormons. I just well, you it's know, widely to, to known this, and it's widely documented that against against federal law for nonprofit religious organizations, numerous emails have been sent out from Mormon organizations in the Mormon Church implicitly and explicitly suggesting people vote for Mitt Romney. We're also seeing this now. It's carrying on. We just did a story earlier this week that it's happening also in evangelical churches. Incredible how evangelicals who recently were calling Mormonism a cult now are saying, don't for, vote for the Christian Obama, vote for the Mormon Romney. So this right. is a big deal. We need to be exploring why are these Mormon organizations who don't pay taxes because supposedly they're not political, why are they being allowed can you give me the name of one of these organizations, David? I'm sorry. I said, could you give me the name of a more of, of of a Mormon church organization that is explicitly telling people how to vote? Yeah, we have the emails documented. You know, we did the story months and months ago. I'd have to research it. I didn't think that was going to come yeah, up. Yeah, because it's a I'm very serious charge. You know, and and if it's true, then I would agree with you. I mean, I was uncomfortable, for example, when the Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Reverend Al Sharpton spoke at churches the night, be- the, the Saturday before the election of 2000, telling people to vote for Al Gore. But yeah, uh, I'm no but fan the- of Jesse Jackson or Al-, Al Sharpton for reasons totally separate than that. So I'm certainly not the guy to defend them. Okay, but the point is that it's one thing for someone to advocate indirectly in their synagogue or in their church that they support certain principles and and whatnot. That's that's fair. That's politics. But if they're coming out flat out and saying vote for this person, and they're putting money behind that, then I have a problem with that. It's a very serious yeah, the accusation. Yes, story is, and you know, we can I can send it to you. Maybe you'll talk about it on a future show. The story is that. Sure. Uh, uh, Mormon church resources and and stationery were used by a, a Mormon uh, employee. I don't even know what the term is, if they're called employees or pilgrims or what the term is, uh, to send out fundraising materials. So that that to me is a, is okay. a clear violation. Okay. No, I mean you're on to something, David. This happens if, everywhere. If, I mean we're constantly if this is seeing. True. I think that imagine we talk about the deficit. Think of how much of the deficit could be resolved. If a lot of these churches lost that nonprofit status, it would make a big dent. Unlike Big Bird, which is 0.012% of the national budget, uh, actually eliminating these tax exemptions for churches that are advocating politics would make a big difference for the for the. Uh, well, budget. I agree. I mean, if if a church or a synagogue or or mosque or any other religious organization is flat out, you know, sending out stationery as you say and paying for ads to promote a candidacy, then they should lose their nonprofit status. I agree with that. I just think that it's a it's a very serious charge. I don't I think that you've made the charge in a way that sounds a little vague to me. You've talked about having some send me this email and uh, you know I'd be certainly I would certainly come out with you on it if it's happening and maybe we could we could discuss it further. But yeah, as the far as I know the details it, is it's it's old news. I mean this has been going on for so long we covered it six or eight months ago. Yeah, but what you're saying is not – you're saying that they implicitly, not explicitly, have have advocated certain candidacies, and I think that's okay. I well, just it's a combination of implicit and explicit. Well, I'll send you the information. Yeah, please. I mean, I want to see the explicit part of it. 
I, I think that that would be troubling, and, and I wonder why their tax-exempt status isn't being challenged. If somebody yeah, has something think, like given that, the war on why isn't the New York Times the writing about this? Exists, that we would, be, well, we would be seeing all these churches lose nonprofit status, yet it's not happening. Well, look, David, I think that if this was what you're saying it is, and again, I'd have to see the evidence. I'm not saying it isn't, but if it was, then, then I think the New York Times would have this on the front page. I mean, if the yeah, Mormon Church this, is this sending stuff out is going on all the time. I mean, do you know that a Bain-controlled company owns a lot of the voting machines that are going to be used? It's a company called Heart. Hey, wait a minute, they For created me, that's a story. I don't know if you're familiar with the website. I, I am Reddit, familiar with that story, David. That the they don't own the Reddit. machines. Hundred thousand views in one day. New York Times isn't covering it. I don't know that no, 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 the they, Times you're, isn't you're, covering you're it. It's not real. They don't own the machines. They created the machines. They're in the business of building voting machines, and then they sold them to municipalities. So you're actually not right about that. And I don't think there's anything particularly sinister about that. I mean, somebody has to build these machines. They're not controlling the machines. The machines are controlled by local counties and municipalities. They built the machines. If you so want to, saying there is absolutely for, for you when we talk about fair elections and the unalienable mm -hmm. ability to cast a ballot and have it count towards the person you want to vote for. For you, it's just of absolutely no importance at all what the history of those machines are and the fact that historically they've fraudulently added votes in a number of different elections. That's, you're not worried no, about that. No, that is a serious problem. I just think that if, no, I think that is a serious problem, but I think that if, vote, if there's voter fraud taking place with these machines – it's being because they're manipulated by the people who control those machines, and those machines are controlled by counties and voting and, uh, you know, municipalities that, that control the vote. And, yeah, I don't doubt that there's voting fraud, especially when you're dealing with computer voting. It bothers me, and I'm with you on that. It's a big, big subject. But to try to say that whoever manufactured these machines did something, you know, just technically, I mean, it seems a little bit of a – of a of, of an out of the box conspiracy theory, but I it's want to not bring a conspiracy up conspiracy theory. It's just that we have to be open to all aspects of this. We're sure. Well, let's investigate and find out if and election fraud happen on all levels, and we've got to look at those machines too. Good. Let's find out if these machines somehow, when they were manufactured, were rigged in such a way that they would come out for Republicans. That's interesting. Well, that, that's Maybe kind of that, that's that's what that's a non sequitur. That that's a, a known well, I mean, that's what you're uh, saying. policy called the non sequitur. We're not saying <laughs> that, that when they were manufactured, yes, you are. anybody did anything. That's exactly the idea what is you're saying. The David. people who built and know those machines happen to be. Many of them, being yeah, and what you're saying is that somehow they're still controlling them, even though they create, you know, the manufacturers sold them to a municipality, and that's a huge conspiracy theory. And, and again, I don't doubt that the people who actually are managing these machines, and this probably could go on whether it be a, a Democratic or a Republican municipality, they very well might manipulate um, the, them when you're dealing with a computer click, and that does bother me. Yeah, I just uh, again Chuck, would. Who, where would they learn how the machines can be manipulated? Obviously, the people who made the right. machines so, are the ones. So who then, are what most you're saying here? I mean, this okay, isn't a broad so now you're stroke conspiracy theory. It's very specific. It, it's very reasonable to say the people who know the most about the machines happen to be the people who support Mitt Romney. All right. So then, what you're saying now is that the people who manufactured the machines, who are is a company that was funded by Bain Capital that they're giving instructions to the counties in terms of how to fix and rig the machines? 
I mean, has anybody come forward? I'm not making forward? any claim. What I'm saying well, is your idea said, that there's... That's what, oh, I'm sorry. That's what you just said. And, and, but I want to move on to another topic, yeah, if you don't let's mind. Let's move because on, because it, this doesn't seem like... You well, know, I'm saying thank you. Exactly. We'll let, the listeners, we'll let the listeners decide, and I hope that if, if you're right and there is this thing going on, it's investigated. Uh, sure. You brought the reason that I one of the reasons I contacted you today was because I get your daily email and I I like what you do. I mean you're very slick in terms of how to promote yourself and you 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 know you're, you're doing a good uh, program. But I've noticed something in your email that you've repeated a few times that really kind of made me got under my craw, if you don't mind okay. my saying. And that is your reference to, and it's a nasty comment that might seem like a throwaway to you, but it gets into a basic issue that troubles me. And that is that you've, you've continually made this comment that Mitt Romney is a sociopath and a psychopath. Right. Now, I'm not, I, I, I haven't think said that fair. he is. Now, let me just tell you why observed that is in I, line with sociopathic behavior. I think that it is fair and appropriate to criticize both candidates based upon what they stand for and the issues and to even criticize some of their style. But if we're going to get into a discussion about the sanity of candidates and we're going to say, gee, rather than say I don't like this person and I disagree with their politics, I'm just going to make the case that they're not sane. I think that that gets into an issue that – I don't know. It kind of scares me because I don't well, want to have – it's a way to, to marginalize to the opponent by saying, don't listen to this person. They're not sane. Yeah, we have, to, we have to back up, though. We have to back up a little bit. Okay. Um, is your background in mental health? Is yours? Well, well, I'm, totally I'm not making any charges about somebody's sanity, so David. You are. Talking with. You're making the charge that someone is insane. I'm not getting into that. So you're the well, one that the, has the to tell me I where you come Chuck, from. If you're, the reason I asked, Chuck, if your background was in mental health is, if it, if it were, you would know that discussing someone's level of sociopathy is not an allegation of insanity. In other words, the same way that everybody is on a spectrum in terms of intelligence or people are on a spectrum in terms of how tall they are or how much they weigh, there's a spectrum of sociopathy, which just measures how much empathy can you feel for others, right? So we're not, I'm not making, nobody has said, listen, on my show, we've not said Mitt Romney is insane. What we discuss is there's a spectrum of sociopathy. Everybody on my show has been tested, actually, to, to figure out where are we on that spectrum, because it's a pretty interesting thing. It's widely documented. Politicians and CEOs score very high in terms of sociopathic tendencies. And so what we did is we've, we've done a lot of stuff on this. And mm-hmm. so reading one line in my email isn't going to give you that information. What we do is we look at information and we say, interesting, Mitt Romney's behavior here, here, and here is indicative of high sociopathy. So it's not an allegation of insanity. It's very calm, rational discussion, bearing in mind that politicians generally tend to be highly sociopathic. Well, look, there. first of all, you asked me what my uh, psychological qualifications are. I'll ask you what are yours. I mean, are you a psychologist? Do you have a background in it? I'm not, no. So I'll, I'll tell you where we got all this information, all the research we've done. My dad is, is a world-renowned family therapist, psychiatrist, and psychotherapist. He speaks all over the world on these and other issues. His mm-hmm. wife 
is a marriage and family therapist who, who deals a lot with sociopathy and psychopathy. We've had a number of experts on my program from all over, and these are science people, not political or religion people. These are science people talking about how is sociopathy measured. Let's talk about all these things. So we've done what I think is, is pretty extensive. Okay. And, again, we're not making any – it's not an ad hominem attack. What we're doing is, listen, everybody's on the sociopathy scale, Let's discuss. Let's. We have open discussions on our show where people don't get yelled at if they if they make different claims. Let's discuss where do we think Mitt Romney is on that scale? Because when he says hello to the same person in a 20 minute meeting four times and doesn't remember having met them, that's an indication of narcissism and sociopathy. So we discuss that. That's all it is. It's not an attack. All right. Well, look. The way it comes across to me is that when you start to not just psychologize someone but do it in a kind of a throwaway way, as in when you send out an email and say the sociopathic Mitt Romney, who is having sociopathic, it's it's kind of a, a code word that goes back. It's not something that's unique to you, but it is a way of saying or sending out a message that this person is not sane and that we can't trust them and we can't listen to them or anything they have to say. If other people believe that discussing sociopathy is an allegation of insanity, I can't control other people's misinformation on that topic. Okay. We're doing a show. That's fine, Very, very popular, and we're bringing up big issues. Mitt Romney's behavior is very, very unusual as a person. Well, so isn't Barack Obama's. But, look, I would suggest to you that to, to come out with statements like referring to people as sociopaths and psychopaths and all these other things... It might serve better to put in some kind of context and qualification so that people understand that this isn't just, uh, you know, a way of saying that this person is crazy. And I well, think just, that, I just look, spent 10 minutes talking to you about and all the you background. Did, but the point is that that's, that's what I get is what I got from you, and that's one of the reasons I've had you on to hear some of the context, and you've done a good job of putting it in a context. But okay. when I just get this email with this comment, it's just it's something that it, it just – one of these things that I think we have to be careful about. And by the way, you know, WorldNet Daily has done a good deal of writing on on Barack Obama's uh, psychology and and his narcissism. And, you know, I suppose that if we want to get into a discussion of people's psyches back and forth, then maybe we'll all end up sitting on a couch somewhere. I just, you know, it it kind of gets off the topic. It Uh, may. I mean, but certainly, and then you open up another topic by mentioning WorldNet Daily, which is, you know, if we go back into their archives, let's just look at some of the incredible propaganda that's been published there that is far worse than evaluating anybody's sociopathy. I'd be happy to discuss them. And by the way, I should mention in full disclosure that WorldNet Daily is the publisher of one of my books, The Nazi Connection to Islamic Terrorism. Um, I don't, I don't, excuse me? I'm not surprised to hear that. No, it's. I mean, it, that that. It, I know that they're very interested in book publishing. They have the book imprint that they do. I think it's WND Books. I yes. get pitched their books all the time. So no, I'm not surprised that they're they're doing books. Oh yeah, well they are. They have a publishing arm. Um, I think that you're talking about Jerome Corsi, who has done some really wild and woolly stuff. And I agree with you. Some of it is a little off the edge. But but I don't think I think that you know I don't I don't really want to either defend or or discuss them. I mean they can speak for yeah, themselves. Yeah, no, I'm happy not to. We can move on to other stuff. Right. I mean you're certainly welcome to have them on your show. And uh, yeah, I, I generally don't like the issue of the the birth certificate and whatnot. I avoid that on my show because I think that Barack Obama was elected and I wanted to serve, whether he was born here or not. I mean the fact oh, wait, is so he you, got a, you don't think he was born here though. 
I don't know if he is or not. I don't care. But is my point. I don't think it's important. I think there are more serious problems with presidents, whether they be Democrat or Republican, doing things that are far less constitutional than whether or not their mother gave birth to them on American soil. I mean, I think I'm much more. Is he a Muslim or not? Again, I trust. I believe Barack Obama himself when he writes in his book uh, Lessons of My Father that he became a Christian at 29 years old under the auspices of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, which is what he said, and I accept that. But on and the prior issue, to that, there, what was he? Yeah, I don't think he was – I think he was probably not – according to his own writing, he didn't have much of a religious orientation at all before that. So, all right, yeah, and we I believe that. that. I think we agree on that. Yeah, I think we do. And I think, again, there are more serious constitutional questions. I am more concerned with, for example, the fact that Barack Obama – not only launched a war against Libya with missiles without any congressional oversight at all, and he only informed Congress a week after he started it. And then when um, Leon Panetta was asked about this in a congressional hearing, and at, why, why didn't you come to Congress, he said, well, we don't have to go to Congress. We were under the auspices of NATO. That, that to me, is a more serious constitutional question than whether or not Barack Obama was his mother was a day, a day late in arriving in Hawaii and giving birth. Yeah, to yeah. No, you're making a really good point, Chuck, which is that for a long time now, military action by the U.S. and this, of course, applies to the the uh, un- unbelievable wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, has been of questionable legality. And you know, I, I we agree on this issue, and we may even agree on drone strikes that have been going on. Uh, right. My my point right now is, you know, the first, uh, I don't know two and a half years of the Obama presidency, my focus was on pointing out why he's not liberal enough and why he's not doing all the things he should and could be doing to further the progressive ideals. Right now, we're at a point, as you notice if you get our daily emails, where it's an election. It's either Romney or Obama right now. And I believe Romney would just be an utter disaster. Therefore, right now, the the focus is on, let's let's just get past the election and get Obama reelected. On November 7th, I promise you, I'm going right back to all the things President Obama should be doing that he's not. So we, we probably have some common ground there. Well, we, we might, but I, I would just point out that since January 7th of 1941, when Franklin Roosevelt got a declaration of war from Congress, there has not been a declared war, and yet we've been involved in many wars, including Vietnam and Korea and, and whatnot. But the difference with uh, Obama's Libyan incursion was that there was absolutely no congressional oversight, no congressional consultation whatsoever. At least with the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, President Clinton got a resolution signed by Congress in November of 1998, which was the Iraq Liberation Act, which authorized him to liberate to, uh, for regime change, and he started to bomb Iraq, and George Bush continued that policy. But the point is that those at least had some congressional oversight. There was a vote. And by the way, the vast majority of Democrats voted in favor of that in November of 1998. So my problem with the most recent incursion was there was no vote at all. There was no congressional consultation whatsoever. And that is unprecedented in terms of the amount of power that an executive has wielded. And I really feel concerned with that being a phenomena in a second Obama administration. I mean, I don't think Obama is a disaster as a president. I agree with a lot of things he's done. But this aspect of executive power without any congressional oversight is one that should concern all of us, left, right, and center. But anyway, David, we've reached the end of the segment. 
I've enjoyed it. Maybe we could do it again soon. Thanks for having me. All right, you bet. David Packman, where can people listen to you? DavidPackman.com. We're on DirecTV and Dish Network across the country. We're also on 155 radio and TV stations. You can also check out our YouTube channel, which is approaching 20 million views, an incredible milestone. Way to go. Okay, All right, thanks, take Chuck. care. All right, thanks a lot. Bye. All right, Chuck Wars speaks. We'll be back in the second hour. Please stay tuned, and we shall return after these messages. Program 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. I want to thank Michael Connolly in the first hour, who talked about the fact that we now have deployed across the United States drones which are spying on people. The Federal Aviation Administration has now approved these drones. And uh, this is something that, in my opinion, is a nightmare story that we should all be concerned about left, right, and center. Do we want the government watching on, uh, uh, what we send out on emails, what websites we're looking at, whatnot? And then in the second half, we had David Packman on, who is a progressive radio talk show host and blogger and um, online and terrestrial host out in western Massachusetts, who uh, we discussed uh, the, uh, the uh, debate last night between Biden and Ryan and, and other issues. Right now, and by the way, I want to welcome aboard our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Uh, right now we're joined by Dr. Gene Youngblood. He is the author of Islam, Is Islam Tolerant? A Christian View of the Quran. Uh, Gene, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks so much. Good to be with you this afternoon, Chuck. Uh, your book documents a lot of uh, direct quotes from Islamic sources, particularly the Quran and the Hadith, that um, when you take a look at these quotes, it's pretty nasty stuff. Um, in terms of uh, what uh, what Islam is about, but um, I guess that I mean you know my my question more from a political standpoint is uh, what do we do? You know, Islam is a religion and a, and a political system, as you point out, 
that has been with us for well over a thousand years. It is well entrenched in the world. They, they I think, they control probably about 20, 25 percent of the of the world's population and the the land surface of the planet. I mean, do we want to have a? Uh, uh, we can't have a crusade against them. What do we do? Well, that's a good question, Chuck. One of the things that needs to be understood by the Western mind, which most cannot fathom or put your hands around the uh, uh, container, if you will, Islam is a way of life. It's not just a religion. Uh, they're in America, and all that they're doing is under the uh, radar, under the guise of Islam, uh, religious freedom. In fact, the uh, imam at uh, Ground Zero, as you know, on national television, bragged about the fact that it's your American freedom that allows me to do what I'm doing, the religious liberties that your constitution uh, mandates. Uh, they have a pretty good handle on uh, how to, uh, if you will, infiltrate. One of the problems uh, linked inextricably with that is the fact that uh, in their Quran, uh, there is uh, a definitive, uh, uh, if you please, battle plan uh, for the uh, uh, domination of the globe. In fact, uh, most are not aware of the fact that the Islamic uh, plan is to dominate the globe, not just the Western world, not just the Islamic world, but to dominate the globe in the year in the 21st century. We're in the 21st century. Uh, we have a president that, in my most humble opinion, based on all vetting that you can do on the man, is a usurper of the throne. He is an Islamic through and through. In fact, one of the recent articles about the ring that he wears, uh, that uh, there's but one God, and that's Allah. Allah is the only God. That's the mantra mm -hmm. that is uh, found throughout the Islamic world. Uh, we uh, need to sit up and take notice as to what we have in Washington as far as our leadership. We can talk about that more uh, during this uh, broadcast. Uh, but to succinctly go back to your question, uh, Islam has been around for uh, approximately 1,500 years since uh, uh, going back to Muhammad himself. Uh, there was a firefight uh, just a few years ago in relationship to Islam uh, that's now flared up again. And mm -hmm. right here in the Jacksonville area where I'm domiciled, uh, we had uh, the Islamics uh, demanding some things of us, making threats on my life and on the uh, campus of the university uh, because mm -hmm. they disagreed with our marquee out front that simply would have on a changeable copy each week a different Quranic verse a surah, as it's called. You can spell that S-U-R-A or S-U-R-A-H. Either one is correct. Uh, yep. But the head of care, which was domiciled in Tampa at the time, Dr. Parvez Ahmed, uh, head mm -hmm. of care, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the most wicked, evil, vile, uh, ungodly organization on the globe, and I'll say that with absolute. I'm with uh, you on that one, uh, by the way, absolute Gene. distinction. I mean, and by the he way, flew from Tampa, Florida, to Jacksonville, Florida, rented a car to come out and demand yeah. that we remove our sign. I said, uh, uh, "What is problem problematic with it?" He said, "Well, it's uh, bothersome." I said, "What's bothersome?" He said, "Well, it's just bothersome." He couldn't get beyond that uh, word. I said, "Well, if you'd like me to, I can get a copy of the Quran and read you the surah, uh, surah 856 that I happen to have on the marquee." He said, mm -hmm. "Then you're saying you're not removing it." And I said, absolutely not. He said, well, Allah's going to burn you in hell. I said, well, I'm going to call the undertaker in about 20 seconds to remove you. Uh, but uh, there is a problem with the Islamic world, with the mind. And the, keep in mind, their mind is wired backwards, is my uh, just lay term. Uh, from the Western world, we can't understand their thinking process. 
Uh, we have the Islamics in America today. I contend there's about 12 million. We're told there's somewhere between uh, 2 and 7 million. I contend that it's greater than that. Uh, but uh, there are a number of them that are considered moderates, and they try to placate the American mind by saying that they're not for jihad and they're not for murder and they're not for this, this, and this. But what the Western mind doesn't understand, that is the fact that in the Quran, they have the right to lie if it right. will convince a Western mind to buy into their ideology and philosophy. Well, you know, that's uh, – by the way, let me welcome aboard our affiliate stations. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Uh, we're at Cyber Station USA Radio Network. I'd like to welcome aboard WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, and, of course, Stitchers, which is our online app. You can download the program anywhere in the world, and uh, iTunes, as well as our uh, online partner, Blog Talk Radio. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Speaks. Uh, Dr. Gene Youngblood is my guest. The book is Is Islam Tolerant? Um Dr. Youngblood, I totally agree with you on care. Uh, there's been congressional testimony from none other than liberal Democratic senators, Charles Schumer and Barbara Boxer, that have linked care to, uh, to Hamas, which, of course, is a terrorist organization that is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, and that is involved in everything you say they're involved in. It is a conspiracy to uh, undermine the United States. Uh, they, are, they are believers in a very radicalized, uh, understanding of what Sharia law means, and uh, they are supporters of jihad. I think there's a lot of evidence of that, including tapes that the FBI have that uh, that show their founding meeting where they talked about jihad. So that's a troubling phenomena, and they uh, and I think that the the uh, Roof or whatever his name is out there at Ground Zero, he was quite right in terms of the strategy that he was using and that Care uses which is to use our very freedoms in this country and our freedom of speech to basically pummel anyone who opposes them by saying that you're discriminating against Muslims and use our own sensibility uh, with regard to fairness to, uh, to against us. Uh, I think that's clear. And, and when I Dr. Think Parvez that they also was the head of the Southeastern Care uh, domicile there in Tampa, uh, he had on his website, of course, that was washed uh, shortly after the major events took place with the Holy Land Foundation investigation out in Texas and the yeah. uh, indictment of some 15 that are spending uh, 15 to life, 15 years to life, Dr. Parvez Ahmed was one of the unindicted co-conspirators in that. Uh, but on his website, there was an article uh, that was very prominently there, and I quote, if you are a Muslim and you're walking down the sidewalk, someone spits on the sidewalk, you call a police officer and tell them that they were spitting at you and file formal charges. If you can get it to the level, get the FBI involved in it, we must come across as being the underdog. Well, exactly. That's their that's, philosophy that, the yeah, that's their philosophy. That's their strategy. And they've also made common cause with the American left. Uh, in fact, and, uh, um, well, well, we... Uh, let me let me uh, say this. Uh, several, and for your listeners, they may not be aware of the Surah uh, and the Quran. You can spell Quran, by the way, with a Q or a K. Either one is uh, acceptable in the academic mm -hmm. circle. Uh, but with the Quran, 
just some of the text. For example, Surah, we'd call them uh, chapter and verse, but in Surah 3, 151, we shall cast terror into the hearts of those who disbelieve, all non-Muslims. Surah 3, 157, if you kill or die in the way of uh, jihad, you have forgiveness and mercy from Allah. Surah 2, 190, fight in the way of Allah, those who fight against you. And keep in mind, they contend every non-Muslim is their enemy and that there is a struggle, i.e. a battle, that they must win against the non-Muslim. Any right. non-Muslim is considered the non-believer, which is to be destroyed. In fact, in Surah 2, 191, and kill them, all non-believers, wherever you find them, kill them, such as the recompense of the disbelievers, that is, all non-Muslims. Surah 2, 193, fight until there is no more disbelief in Allah. Uh, Surah 298, whoever is an enemy of Allah his me and his messenger, then verily Allah is an enemy to that disbeliever. Now, I could go on with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the surahs. And yet no, you, and you they do, will by try way, to tell book. us. And, you uh, the, they will tell us. They're in, they in almost every aspect of life, and it's, it's a very uh, damning uh, document. And I think that also I, I, I feel almost nervous saying this, but... Um, you do make the case, and I've read this in other books that document the life of uh, the Prophet Muhammad, and that he was a very, very evil man. I don't think there's any question about that. Wicked, but, uh, evil, damnable person yes, in character, characteristics and conduct. It, it's very little to to recommend him in terms of um, virtue and morality at all. Having him being six years old, he was uh, That's right. uh, termed in 2003 as the demon-possessed pedophile. Uh, you know, but, but let me. But Gene, I want to. I just want to. We can go over those things, and we will, and we should. But um, at the same time, is there not also a moderate Muslim tradition that has always been in place? And are there not moderate American Muslims that we should try to uh, cultivate as in a friendly way and try to help them reform Islam and bring Islam into? a situation where they could have some sort of a um, an apparatus where they can interpret these surahs in a um, in a more christianized and more secularized manner. If to give you a succinct answer to that question is absolutely unequivocally 100% no. Now, here's my rationale. Well, yeah. I have interviewed hundreds of Muslims. I've got a litmus test of five questions. Do you read the Quran? Yes, sir. Do you try to obey the five pillars of the Islamic faith? Yes, sir. Do you have your Friday prayers? Yes, sir. Do you believe that you should obey the Quran? Yes, sir. Do you believe that Allah and Muhammad's words are to be obeyed? Yes, sir. If the affirmative is given on those five questions, given the right circumstance, they will perform jihad and kill me. Well, well but wait a minute, Gene. The, the That's mandated that, in the Quran. No, and I understand that. But the fact is that... Um, in Christianity and in Judaism, we have had interpretations of various passages in both the Old and the New Testament, which bring it to a modern-day understanding. And well, there's, there's but, and, a and also differential the other, there, and in the uh, Scripture, the Holy Scripture, the Bible for the Christian and the Jew, uh, and the Quran. The Quran is fiat. At one time, there were over uh, uh, thirty thousand. Surahs, down through the Cardinals of Times, 1,500 years, when they had the uh, caliphate system, after Muhammad died, each new caliphate that would come into power would call in all the Qurans. He would have his visions and interpretations from uh, Allah, and they would be reprinted and sent back out. 
Today, the Quran has only 3,000 surahs. There's no chronology. There's no context. There is no uh, following in the Quran as we would open the Bible from Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22 and find chronology and context. You don't find that in the Quran. There's a well, lot of pithy sayings, and the problem is of what is called abrogation. And Surah 9, that is the ninth chapter we call it, uh, abrogates all of the surahs in the Quran. As I'm seated here, I have the Holy Quran in my left hand. Mm -hmm. Holy Quran, it gives the Islamics the privilege of abrogating verses, as we'd call them, and text. We can't do that with the Holy Bible. There's right. nothing that abrogates one following the other. The Old Testament is a window, is a light, is uh, interpretive information for the New Testament, and the New Testament... Kind, uh, also for the Old Testament, giving well, windows well, and light. There's a let, chronology. Let, wait there's a, a context. Gene, Gene, excuse me. Um, what you're saying then is that the Quran basically has a clause in it in which the entire book could be abrogated by a, uh, a ruler or a caliph in this case and replaced entirely by whatever they think they want to put in it. Is that right? Yes, sir. And uh, they can interpret. All right. Well, then let me just wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Gene. Gene, let me elaborate a little bit on that. If that is the case, and I'm not in any way suggesting it's not, why cannot then, therefore, more moderate modern Muslims, like for example the um, the Mufti of Rome, who has talked about recognizing Israel as a Jewish state, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish people. He's recognized, uh, he's come out and condemned jihad as a violent maneuver. He has come out and condemned uh, you know, suicide bombs and, and the warlike aspects of the faith, saying that that could be reinterpreted. Why can't then, therefore, a Muslim leader put into a position of authority reinterpret these things? I mean, based upon the Quran itself. It's just a thought. It may be a thought, and for a Western mind, and I do not uh, uh, in any way denigrate your thought, but it's just simply incorrect. Uh, as I'm seated here with the, quote, Holy Quran, as they call it, in my hand, that yeah. is the, as we would call it, a study Bible. In the Quran that I'm holding, which is the one that is approved by Islamic uh, uh, imams on a global basis, and all of the grand muftis, it's approved mm -hmm. by them, and in their own uh, editorial footnotes by their own Islamic scholars, it talks about what jihad is. Jihad is not simply a submissive struggle, as we're told by the, quote, moderate Muslims in America today. It right. is a movement design. In fact, a little parenthetical footnote here. Uh, the only way that a Muslim, according to the Quran, can be guaranteed paradise is by committing jihad. You understand that? You know, the only gee, way look, I guarantee. I, I understand that. Yes, I do. But but I guess that my point is that if you have the mullahs today, and I, I I agree with you, they are definitely oriented this way, interpreting jihad to mean bloody war, and I think they do. Then could we not then therefore tell the Islam Islamic faith in the world that um, if they want to interpret jihad as bloody war then they're going to get bloody war. We're going to meet them in the battlefield. We're going to fight them everywhere we can. But we have no if they option. want we have to, no wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, excuse me, excuse me. But if we want to, if they want to take a more moderate view, a more frankly Christianized view of jihad, which is that it's an internal struggle in one's life toward 
becoming a better person, toward improving their societies, then then there's a tradition within Islam that also has that as its virtue. So I think that this is more a matter of Islam, and I don't I'm not all that optimistic that this could ever happen. But that it, well, we'll see. But I think that Islam needs to have enough people within its confines who are willing to say that they're going to make the case that jihad means n- not the violent version, but the more peaceful version. And I, I, I want to just bring up one. I want to just shift a little bit here also, because I think that we in the Western democracies are a little bit high and mighty when we take a look at the world order nature of Islam, its world conquering nature, its controlling of people's lives, its controlling of the way of life in their societies. Because after all, it was our Western culture, not the United States, but Europe, that gave birth to the two secular socialist experiments of the 20th century, those being Nazism and communism. And those were just as evil. Actually, I would contend much more evil than Islam. So this is not just something that's unique to Islam. And I also wonder if the uh, the communists and the, and the Nazis, both of them being the flip side of the same coin, a product of the European Enlightenment, the darker side of it, if they didn't manipulate Islam, modern Islam, in such a way that it has become this violent world-conquering movement. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, Gene, because you're, you've actually read the Quran and I haven't. But I, my understanding, based upon what I have read, is that the Quran is roughly divided into two halves. The first half is the more peaceful, the more spiritual half, which talks about virtues and it, it, it gets into... Um, some of the uh, you know the revealed truths of Sinai, and it gets into the ministry of Jesus, and it gets into some of the ethics of of, of the Judeo-Christian idea. It's the second half that gets into this violent stuff and gets into the the conquest, because it reflects the fact that in Muhammad's life, in the in the second part of his life, he had become a military leader and that he had subdued most of um, most of Saudi Arabia, most of Arabia. And it should be understood that he was more than just a spiritual leader. He was a general. He was a military person. He was a a political leader. And I think that what might have happened here, and this is just a theory on my part, you can certainly comment on it, is that the communist movement, uh, starting with the Young Turks in in Egypt, in, uh, in Turkey, and then onward, what they did was they created a new religion by getting cutting off the first half of the Quran and throwing it out and then taking the second half and magnifying it, uh, because that's what communism is. It's almost an exact reflection, this idea of world conquest, what the communists call revolution, what the Nazis called blitzkrieg, what the, what the jihadists called jihad, to serve their own purposes, to remove the moral side, to remove the fact that Islam does believe in God, they do believe in, they are monotheistic, they do believe in revealed moral and ethical codes, Maybe not no, as, as not as no, superior sir. as as Christianity, but nevertheless. Chuck, they, if I can interrupt for just one moment, please, what you're saying is please. highly philosophical and sounds uh, with a lot of good uh, uh, adjective uh, elements in it. Uh, that it sounds uh, fuzzy, but it just has to be incorrect. Uh, there's no such thing as the Quran being divided in half, and there's a good half and a bad half. It doesn't exist. Right. 
Okay. Uh, that is not found in any of the ideology and anything called Islam today. And you go back to Hitler's movement, uh, which uh, murdered about uh, 20 million uh, Gentiles slash Christians and about 6 million Jews. The Grand Mufti was involved at his right hand carrying oh, out absolutely. the task. Well, you know, by uh, the way, Gene, I'm the author of a book about that. It was published by World Net Daily called uh, The Nazi Connection to Islamic Terrorism. I get into the career of the Grand Mufti. And, yeah, but, he was... According to testimony at Nuremberg, he was a bigger player in the Holocaust than than uh, than Eichmann. No, there's there's no question about that connection. But but my point now, is that uh, it was this going radicalized. Back to your, excuse me. Going going back to your philosophical thought. Uh, yeah. There is uh, here here here's the grand picture. Here's the big uh, circle. Genesis seventeen eighteen and nineteen. When you had uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Abraham and Sarah, uh, mm-hmm. Abraham and Sarah were unwilling to wait for the uh, Isaac. So, as you know the story, the biblical sure. account of it, Sarah they, said, uh, go in and have sex with my uh, handmaid, and maybe yeah. that's the way God wants us to have a son. Well, they produced Ishmael, uh, and then the ultimate uh, son of promise was Isaac that came later. Ishmael was detested uh, and hated and ultimately kicked out of the home. And as a result of that, God provided for Hagar and Ishmael in the desert. And God's word, not mine, says that he would be a wild man. His hand would be upon all nations and hated of all people. God Mm -hmm. said it, I didn't. That's the great, 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 great granddaddy of Muhammad. Sure. That's where we are today. No, it's not yeah, something it, we're going to run from. It's not something we're going to be able to ideologically come up with a philosophical uh, fix and make it go away. We cannot deal with them on the basis that we're finding out of Washington today with Barack Hussein Obama. We're not going to be able to deal with it by placating them and having a undersecretary or the uh, deputy chief of staff of Hillary Clinton that uh, she, her mother, her dad, and her grandfather all part of the Muslim Brotherhood. How do we have a Muslim Brotherhood within the U.S. State Department and then think that we're going to have safety and security in our embassies and uh, our sovereign soil in foreign lands. How do we think we're going to do that? What, what does the nation think took place uh, with our uh, embassy uh, uh, chief being slain and three other Americans uh, on the basis that uh, it was just a mob that didn't like a video, 14-minute video, about Muhammad? Um, you know something? We've been sold a pack of lies because we have been totally infiltrated in Washington with the Islamic ideologists that want to overthrow America from the from within, and let, so let far they're being very successful briefly, with it. If I may, the um, that whole business about the uh, the, the tape that um, the, that was supposedly anti-Muslim that stirred up uh, the attack on the embassy in Benghazi, which led to the murder of four Americans, including the ambassador. Um, that that I, I I'm looking at that now because it's not been admitted that that had nothing to do with it, but the, perhaps the motivation there on the part of Obama and the administration in bringing that up was not only to deflect the the blame from from themselves, which is that they were careless in terms of providing the appropriate security, even though the ambassador himself had asked for it and they ignored that and said no, but also it was a subtle way of attacking people like you and me because what they were saying was the people to blame here are not radical islamics but it was westerners who engaged in insulting muhammad that are to blame 
So it almost served as like a blue plate special for Obama. He got to uh, reflect blame for his own incompetence, and he got to blame conservatives indirectly for this brutal murder. Uh, well, uh, you take a little softer approach than I do on that. Uh, I, I, I contend that it wasn't just trying to pass the buck or cover the blame. He was uh, uh, covering himself, trying to get beyond the election, uh, trying to right. show that I'm the strong man, that I have a good uh, relationship on a global basis with uh, foreign policy. He has no foreign policy, has never had a foreign policy. Uh, from the very get-go in 2009, he started going to Cairo, Egypt, and apologizing for America being a strong nation, uh, appeasing and reading and quoting from the Quran uh, to the Islamics there. We spent $700 million through the U.S. State Department to rehab uh, the Islamic mosque in Cairo and other Islamic places, nations. He uh, is part parcel and, may I say, the catalyst behind what was called the Arab Spring. Uh, it was, uh, my most humble opinion, it was uh, uh, thought and hatched out of the mind of Barack Obama. Uh, I said when they started that, it's not an Arab Spring, it's going to be an American Westerners nightmare uh, that mm -hmm. we'll wind up with the Islamic Brotherhood in charge. Right now yeah. we have Islamic Brotherhood in charge of each of the areas that were supposed to be an Arab Spring. Right yep. now we have major, major difficulty in uh, Turkey and in Syria as a result of the promulgation and the planning, in my most humble opinion, to overthrow the leadership there, to replace him uh, with Islamic Brotherhood. And it has not worked as simply and as easily as Obama had planned it to do. We have now uh, strategy forces in Jordan trying to work through that with uh, Syria and uh, the ultimate uh, battle that's going to take place with Syria and Turkey. When you look at the scripture again, and I'm a central biblicist, I look at the globe on the basis of the biblical worldview. What do we have taking place, and what does the Bible say in relationship to that? The Bible speaks to every issue that we have today. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is uh, vividly clear that there's coming, there's a coming Islamic invasion on a global basis. It will start with the nations, five nations, led by Russia. By the way, the Russian army today is made up of about 51% Islamics. Uh, the Russian leadership will come against Israel and bring with it five nations. Those five nations that uh, Russia will bring against Israel that will be the uh, major conflagration uh, will be Turkey and part of the eastern Ukraine, uh, Iran, Sudan, uh, and Libya. Uh, those are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 prophetically, and it's very, very clear that that's what's taking place today. Uh, we find well, the, well the, what, what you're saying then, uh, Dr. Youngblood, is that we're heading for World War III. We're heading for, let me give you a little eschatological, that is, future tense prophetic overview. The next event on the calendar of God for the Christian, there's some that disagree with this, and that's wonderful. Uh, it is a biblical uh, theological truth. There's going to be the rapture of the church, the sudden seizing, the snatching away of the body of Christ. Following that will be seven years of uh, thumos. It's the word wrath in the Bible, spelled thumos in the Greek text, meaning God's white-hot anger being poured out against a world that said no to Jesus Christ and that's come against the nation of Israel. The conclusion of that will be the return of Christ in the 1,000 year, which means millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what will bring to that ultimate seven years of battle is what Matthew 24 calls the rumblings of wars. 
we're seeing the rumblings of wars now on a global basis as never before in the history of America. And I'm 70 years old, and I've, I'm seeing it more daily now than in my lifetime. And we're seeing those rumblings of wars, which will then catapult into this Islamic invasion that will come against the nation of Israel, which will trigger the rapture of the church and the seven years of tribulation. Now, a non-believer, a non-biblicist, uh, a one that doesn't have a biblical worldview could counter any of those points as much as they like, but it doesn't change the facts one iota. So what we're seeing is those things take place. Now, are we to roll over and play dead? Are we to say, well, the train is coming, so I'm not going to get out of the tunnel? Not on your life. Uh, we are to stand, and we're to be armed with armament and uh, battle arraignment, uh, biblically speaking, to stand against the enemy. We have an enemy now that's infiltrated into our world. And going back, by the way, Chuck, to a uh, uh, infinitesimal but yet very, very real uh, thought that you had, and uh, you're uh, philosophizing on how could we not look at it. That you know they look at the, they have their Quran and they talk about Jesus and they talk about the church. Mm -hmm. Listen very carefully. The Jesus that you and I talk about that is biblical, God's word, is not the Jesus of the Quran. I debated with no, an Islam and he said, well, our Quran talks more about, uh, has more about Jesus and Mary than the Bible. I said, absolutely not. Your no, Quran no, no, talks no. about look, Mary, but it's a different Mary. It's not the mother of Jesus. Gene, Your Quran look, talks I, about I, Jesus, look, but it's not I, the Son can, of God. I understand now, that. It's a different women. Let me, if I might get in a word here. The, we're getting into a very interesting topic, which is the theology of Christology and you know what, how Islam views Jesus, how Judaism views Jesus. And um, and how of course as, you know it's it's different than the way Christianity does, but um, I want to comment on. Um, and by the way, I should mention that I'm not Christian; I'm Jewish myself. So wonderful! I've got some wonderful Jewish friends. Had uh, dinner with one okay. just yesterday. <laughs> but my concern is that if you're going to talk about upcoming end time prophecies and whatnot, and this is part of Judaism as much as it is part of Christianity. I mean. For my Jewish co-religionists, I'd point them to the book of Joel. I'd point them to the book of Ezekiel, as you say, which is part of our canon. Absolutely. The, the fact is that um, that these are things, and, and again, I'm walking, I'm getting into an area where you're an expert and I'm not. You're a minister. I am not a rabbi. But my understanding from a layman's perspective is that um, these are the types of things that are going to be taken care of by the Lord God, King of the universe, blessed be he, not by you and I. What we can do in the secular world, and I think that you alluded to this, is we can stand very firmly on what we believe to be correct based upon our understanding of divine laws from Sinai, and in the case of Christians, the ministry of Jesus. And we can espouse those beliefs and contrast them with the enemy's beliefs, which are not, and also, in the more practical sense, we can arm ourselves, and we can make sure that we protect those beliefs, which are basically the right of the individual, in the case of Christianity, to have a personal relationship with Christ in freedom. And, um, you know, in the, right, in, the, in the terms of Judaism, the, the Noahide covenant, the laws of Moses, you know, the sovereignty of the tiny state of Israel, and personal redemption. And, and, and we can deal with that in terms of confronting the enemy with those laws. I think that, for example, Roosevelt, President Franklin Roosevelt, did this when he confronted Hitler and said that we are not, our system is superior, 
Our system is a Christian system. Yours is an evil pagan system. And we're going to accept nothing but unconditional surrender. And Amen. And to war. And Ronald Reagan did it when he confronted the evil empire. I remember Absolutely. the left was howling with rage when he said, our system, our way of life, our belief system is the superior system because we have individual freedom and people have a right to to, to operate within the context of uh, under God versus yours, which is evil. And I think that that led to the disintegration of, of the Soviet Union without firing a shot. So my feeling on a more practical level is that the best way to confront radical Islam, and again, I do differentiate between radical Islam and more conventional, moderate Islam. I do believe, maybe I'm over-optimistic, but I do believe that it is possible for Islam to reform itself. But either way, when it comes to the radicals, when it comes to those who are calling for bloody jihad and calling for making the world conform to their view, which I think is a twisted one, and I would argue it, the best way to confront it is both militarily and ethically, by, by saying, you're not right in the way you treat women. We don't agree with you that homosexuals should be beheaded. We don't agree with you that honor killings are honorable. These are not appropriate institutions in a free society, and we, we, we condemn your way of looking at it. And then if they want to fight about it, Meet them on the battlefield with all of our arms ready to go. In a sense, I appreciate what approach. you're saying, and what you're saying is 100% correct with one caveat. What's that? The God that you and I believe in and follow every day is not the God of the Quran. Allah uh, all is. Right, all right. Wait, 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 Gene. I w we'll get into that in a second. But the point is that, well, you know, and that's debatable. I, I, I've talked to Muslims who say that it is the same God. I actually disagree with you here. I, I, maybe it was originally a satanic idea, but the point is that I do believe that Islam, when you get down to the basics, it is monotheistic. They do believe in God. Now, no, sir. The, they, well, they okay, believe you in Allah. Allah, Allah is not God. Allah is one right. of 360 gods that were, happened to be in the Kaaba box, the Kaaba stone in Mecca. And uh, going in, uh, Muhammad determined that they were all false gods except one, which was the moon god of the Bedouins, which was named Allah, that they prayed to for rain and for fertility. That is all not right, the god of the Bible. I, I understand Allah that, did not I respect, create anything. The I Jewish god your, of the Hebrew... Christian, Judeo-Christian God created the world and set everything in place. Look, I respect your, your opinion on that. Um, there are differences, by the way, between Judaism and Christianity on the nature of God. These are theological questions. My point is that from the perspective of my understanding of the creator of the universe, my understanding of how our secular world works, we, we have to encourage the more frankly, Christianized view of, of God that also exists within Islam and fight the, the, the more satanic view in the same way that we have to encourage in our Christian world the more pro appropriate view of how society should exist, which I think represents is represented by the United States versus the more satanic view, which is represented by socialism, whether it be Nazi socialism or Soviet socialism. So, you know, Chuck, I would like really... for you to convince the folks in London, England, of your philosophy on that. 
I'd like for you to uh, contact right. any of the uh, religious leadership, whether Jewish or Christian, in uh, Great Britain, and uh, see if your philosophy and ideology would uh, work with them, because they have tried what you're philosophizing about, and they've determined that it doesn't work because they've been inundated and now being taken over and destroyed by the jihadists. Well, the look, end result again, I mean, of your philosophy and your ideology—I'm not—I'm not backing. I'm not in any way. I'm, oh, you're, I'm coddle, you're that, wanting to coddle them on the basis no, that they no, might no, have no, a no. holy book, they might have a real God, uh, they might have a rationale that the first half of their holy, so-called holy book is good and the last half is bad. That ideology and that philosophy doesn't cut it because I know what's in the Quran, know what's in the Hadith, I know what uh, Muhammad said. Muhammad himself said that he was wicked, evil, and that uh, uh, Satan was possessing his body to speak, and he prayed to Allah. The philosophy was there that I can pray to a moon god and he's okay. If he had prayed to the Judeo-Christian god, Muhammad would have been a, quote, religious person, a spiritual person, and not the jihadist he was. But the point so is that... we can't coddle them and give any... It's not a matter uh, of coddling. It's a matter of that, from a practical standpoint, we are not going to have a crusade that's going to wipe out Islam. It's not no, going no. to happen. Don't, don't use way the word crusade now because I've studied the crusades and I'm familiar with the crusades. And uh, Pope Urban, as a result of 450 years of the jihadists, the uh, Islamics, under the leadership of uh, the jihadists of that day, for 400-plus years trying to destroy the, quote, Catholic Christians almost to the Holy See, and the first crusade was started as a retaliation against being destroyed by the jihadists. Look, you're right. You, we have accepted, unfortunately, a uh, an Islamic view of what the Crusades are about, and I agree with you. But the point is that in this day and age, the the nature of of the conflict is between. You know, I guess it comes down to what Whitaker Chambers talked about in his book Witness. Are you familiar with Whitaker Chambers? No, I'm not. Okay, Whitaker Chambers was an American communist who turned who who became a Christian and left communism, and he was a spy for the Soviets, and he ended up testifying against people in high levels of government who were working for Stalin, including Alger Hiss. And uh, he's a great man, and he wrote a bio his own autobiography, which is called Witness, how he, how he uh, developed. And, and, and one of the brilliant insights that he had was that this is a struggle between what he called God versus man. In other words, the, the side of God is the belief that... Um, there is a creator of universe of the universe who is outside of the manipulation of people, and that uh, we, you know to accept that idea we we can make ourselves free versus the communist idea, and he refers to communism as the second oldest faith, uh, the the faith of the Garden of Eden the, the, of the of the serpent, that man can control his own world, that man is the center of the universe and that man can transform his fellow man by use of force or fraud. And that uh, we have to, you know, our fight against the communists and the Soviet Union was this fight, the fight between God versus man. Our fight against the Nazis was, I think, this fight. Our fight against southern slavery, I think, was this fight. I think it was... Uh, Actually, now, Chuck, here you go again with your uh, coddling by philosophizing that we can uh, equate Islam with either any of these uh, ideologies. We can't. There are some likenesses, yes. Uh, there are some things that are one's drawn from the other absolutely unequivocally. We cannot 
uh, equivocate by saying that somehow in a codgling philosophical approach that this is just another one of these entities, i.e. socialism, communism, etc. Uh, well, there's well some I would argue... Element. There's I would element. argue with I would argue, Gene, that communism and Nazism were much more evil than um, than Islam, and they, they the reason they were more evil was because they had no god at all. Now, I, at least, at but least we're, dealing with with, Islam, we're dealing with Islam that has no god. It is not a god. It is not the Judeo-Christian god. It well, is a false again, god. we're we're getting now, into theological on a, what would be called here. a punctilier level. That is a point in time past with results in the future. You could say socialism, communism, the Adolf Hitlers, and the Grand Mufti that helped him to destroy the six million Jews and the twenty million Christians. We can say that all of that was uh, evil, just as evil as Islam. But it's not as much as far as the warp and the woof. That is the threads the fabric of society that covers all of society today. It's a global thing. It's not going to stop. It's not an ideology that can uh, be confronted and say, well, it's going to go away. It's just like with the uh, jihadist uh, lover president in uh, Washington today, Barack Hussein Obama, that has the philosophy that I can just love them and cudgel them, and it caused the American citizens to think that we're protected when that's not the case at all. Well, first there of all, I would, silent, argue, I would argue that the period Odd. I would argue that the Nazi and communist movement. I would the argue silent. that the Nazi and communist movement were more evil, and I do believe that um, you can have Muslims that are good people and that feel that they're observant. Well, to interview me Islamic to get my philosophy, do you want us to listen to yours? No, no, no. I mean, I, I, we, we should discuss that, but I'm just, I'm simply pointing out that. I, I don't think that the and I've done the investigation. The, I've done the study. I, I I know what I'm talking about. I have the book. No, I, I hear you, and I and I've read not only oh, your book talk but about others the book a bit. like this. I, I'm simply pointing out that um, I I feel that it is possible for Islam, and I may prove wrong here, but it it could reform. There are moderate Muslims in this country and in in the world reformation who are Islam not involved in no reformation involved in Islam sort of thing. from their Quran. Excuse me. There's no reformation for Islam based on God's word. There's no reformation for Islam based on their Quran. Well, we can philosophize I, I, again, I mean, I would Western point out, I would point out to you, no, I, I disagree with that. It's a minority in in Islam, but there are people like, for example, the Mufti of Rome today. You, are you familiar with Gert Wilder? Yes, and in fact, you you published a fantastic speech that he delivered. At the end of the book, where he is trying to say, and I think he's right, that that uh, radical Islam is gradually taking over Europe. That's a Not problem. Not gradually taking over; it has totally dominated all of Europe today. Uh, in the Netherlands, back in 1960, they started uh, the importation of between 600 and 1500 Islamics per year. It then, in just a matter of a few years, by 1970, they were importing about 15,000 per year, and now it dominates dominates the total parliamentarian movement in the, the Netherlands, and the Muslims are in total control. Well, well again, I, think that, out pleading with I, I don't know what, what, what are you suggesting being as a solution to that. I mean, I would argue that the best way to go is to simply tell Islamic citizens in the United States and in Europe, those who don't want to hear it, I think there are many who do, that they have to become a part of our culture. They can still continue to be Muslims in every sense, but they cannot impose what is contrary to American culture any more than any other immigrant group could. And uh, there is a problem with Islam that is much more severe than other immigrant groups. They are not interested in assimilating. They are insistent upon maintaining almost a separate 
system of law and system of uh, order in their own faith. And to a certain extent, I, I think that can be tolerated. But when they step outside of that, that you know, the private realm of their of their conducting their own lives and try to impose it on non-Muslims. And when that particular private realm becomes so oppressive that they're engaging in such things, as I said, as killing young girls because they're seen, you know, outside the home in the company of a young man or yes. things like that, then that runs against our sense of secular law in the same way that any other religion can't do things that, uh, you, you know, w would be a violation of our secular law. Let me give you a little illustration of that to further amplify your statement. Uh, right here in Jacksonville, we have the former head of care, the Dr. Parvez Ahmed, which is an associate academics professor um, at uh, the University of North Florida, is also seated as an appointed member of the Human Rights Commission. Just recently, in a long uh, article that was published in the uh, Tampa Tribune, uh, he waxed eloquently uh, with his philosophy that uh, saying anything publicly, as I'm speaking now, to say anything publicly about Islam is like crying fire in an elevator, that we mm -hmm. need to go back and revisit the constitutional right of freedom of speech. Uh, because so. if it, the, that freedom of speech then says something about Islam that's in disagreement with Muslims, then it must be curtailed. That well, movement, yeah, that movement Chuck, is across America. It's not no, just I'm, a. He I, I totally he's with a, you on that. It's very intimidating. Look, I know of a radio talk show host, Muslim, who was fired in Washington because he made some mild criticism of Islam. Care called up his radio station and said, "You have to fire that man, or else we're going to come after you." And he mm -hmm. was fired. And he, was, he basically is not broadcasting here in Boston. No, it's very troubling. It's something that completely is contrary to um, American notions of uh, of free speech and fairness. Certainly Christianity comes under assault all the time. I mean, I just had a guest today who assaulted Mormonism, saying there's a conspiracy. You know, this is – and we accept that, you know, to a certain degree. That's part of free speech. And to well, have I'd rather that, have a Mormon in the White House than a moron. <laughs> okay. Me too. Um, we we accept – here, Here's a, a little poignant yes. uh, quote from Gert Wilder. The Quran is a fascist book which promotes violence and is similar to Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. The Quran should be banned, outlawed for any use in the mosque and or at home. Gert Wilder, the radio station, Netherlands Worldwide, August the ninth, two thousand seven. No, look, it's it's a very troubling phenomenon. Gert Wilder, by the way, is a man who is very, very courageous. He is gonna to have to have a personal God for himself and his family for the rest of his life. People Absolutely. need to understand that. And this is somebody who is an elected official in the Netherlands who spoke out about this, and uh, it's very intimidating. You know, you have Now, when we say that, you and I both agree on that. Oh, we do. Right? Is but these are, these are the radicals. We have a situation in the United States where a cartoonist who creates uh, this cartoon for, not for children, but, you know, like an adult cartoon, made a made a spoof on, on Muhammad, and he got threats that he was going to have his head chopped off. So, you know, this is, you know, this kind of intimidation has frightened the entire world. And uh, but I agree with you. purposeful intimidation that, because, you see, that's a part of the jihadist movement. Right. Is to cast terror into the hearts 
of the non-Muslim. That is one of their uh, surahs. That's one of the major things that they go, is to cast terror in the hearts of the non-Muslim. That is, frighten them stiff to make them sit up and take notice. uh, If we didn't have uh, uh, the uh, 83 socialists in the House and the Senate in Washington and a large number of Muslims now in leadership, we would not be frightened and or intimidated. This is the reason, by the way, so that you know my political position, we must put Mitt Romney in office. We don't have an option if we're going to try to save our liberties in America uh, as of November the 6th. No, look, Uh, and and I'm with you on that. And, by the way, um, my guests in the previous hour brought up the fact that um, WorldNet Daily has mentioned mentioned that Barack Obama is really a Muslim. Oh, I've said that. I'm wondering if you comment on that. I don't think I don't think there's any question, according to his own writings and his own uh, book, which uh, you know, you know, which is um, Dreams of My Father, that he was Islamic as a youth. I mean, that's not even controversial. But the question is, is he secretly Muslim now? I mean, that I don't know. I would I, I would I don't know for a uh, given a de facto answer, but based on all of his motives, his mindset, his movements, his mandates that we've seen while he's in office, I would have to say answer that question unequivocally yes. Uh, you can't answer the question uh, with all the things that he has done allowed to take place in the Islamic world any other way. Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, in the book. Um, is Islam tolerant? The bottom answer is no. There's 25 chapters in there which covers Islam and Allah, Islam and the Quran, Islam and abrogation, Islam and the Holy Bible, Islam and deception, Islam and Muhammad the sinner, Islam and Jesus, Islam and the crucifixion, Islam and Mary, Islam and salvation, Islam and hell, the Trinity. Jewish people are treated and considered in the Quran, not mm-hmm. just by the jihadists, not just by the radicals, but by the Quran, which every Muslim says that they read and believe, the Jew is considered a pig and is to be destroyed. I, now, you know, I mean, unfortunately, you're right. I mean, this is all in the Quran. I guess that, you know, we're reaching the end of the segment, uh, Gene. So, again, I mean, I'll bring up the question, putting aside the, um, you know, the, the, the spiritual aspect, which is what, what the Lord God is going to do. What can we do? Today, I mean, are we going to have another? I mean, we most Americans don't want to have, a, as I said, a crusade against the Islamic world because that's going to be a bloody world war that could end up destroying the entire planet. What can we do short of that to make Islam more peaceful? And I'm saying that where I think you and I do disagree on the the, the fact that Islam, whether it, it's going to take war or peace, is going to have to be made more peaceful, but it can continue to exist. But what can we do? Good answer. I mean, a good question. You have a copy also of my book, uh, Is It Time for Revolution? Uh, that's dealing with an Old Testament. Uh, uh, we, we should do another show on that one. But the, uh, but the point is, in answering your question, I will touch on that. Uh, that's dealing with Second uh, Chronicles chapter uh, 10 and following, and it's dealing with the divided kingdom after Solomon's death. And yeah. uh, as a result of the king, i.e., we call it the president today, not listening to the people, wanting to tax the people and make slaves out of them, you had a major battle between that, and they basically chased the king out of town, killed the tax uh, collector, and uh, set up a leadership that was uh, God-honoring. Now, my, the premise in my book, it'll either be the battlefield or the ballot box, and it's my prayer that we can have the revolution at the ballot box. You ask the question, what is the hope, what can we do? We need to, on a local level, state level, and national level, vote and put people in there that honor God. Uh, and uh, when I say that, now listen very carefully, 
That can be a Christian. That can be a Jew. That can be a Mormon. But that honor God, the God, the creator God, not a fiat God, not an Allah God. We have a totally, totally different mindset. The mind is wired totally different when you understand that aspect of it. Okay. Uh, but what can we do with the Islamic world? I mean, what do we do with uh, Syria and, and Jordan and Saudi Arabia? Very good I mean, question. As it stands now, we should have gotten, my most humble opinion, we should have gotten involved if we really have the, quote, Obama uh, philosophy or Obama doctrine that he carried out with uh, Libya and he carried out with Iraq, that we carried out as a nation with Iraq under uh, Bush, uh, of going in to, quote, set up a new leadership. That's what he claimed, but he's not doing it. Why is he not doing it? Because Syria has uh, nuclear weapons. They have the weapons of mass destruction that were transported out of Iraq. Uh, Obama knows that, and he is fearful of the retaliation by uh, the Syrian leadership if we try to go in there and do anything. We're going to get involved in that war, whether we want to or not, because right now we're assisting uh, the uh, uh, military forces in Turkey. Turkey has been wanting to go back to a caliphate system now for the past 10 years rather than being a democracy. And uh, we're going – you watch what I'm telling you. That will mm -hmm. unravel. America will be involved in the battle between Syria and Turkey, which will bring in the uh, allied forces. We're going to have a Middle Eastern battle whether we want to or not, and it's all brought about as a result of Islam. There's, well, I hope, there I hope is no way under that. God's blue heaven – that America will not be drawn into a Middle Eastern war. Uh, I hope I am, you're wrong about that one, Gene. I, I am thankful for Benjamin Netanyahu and his stand. My yes, prayer is too. that morning, Look, any is, morning, Israel, that we'll wake up is, and see that he has yeah. done a preemptive strike on Iran. That's no, on the hope well, for that, Israel. I don't know if Israel has the the power to do it alone, but um, I think Gert Listen, Wilder Israel doesn't have to do it alone. You go back and study the uh, Torah, the Old Testament text, as we call it in Christianity. God's not going to let an enemy come in and destroy Israel. Israel has one of the meanest uh, weaponry and military uh, uh, air forces that's ever been created on earth. Now, that doesn't mean Israel can do it by herself. That's the reason well, that's we I mean. must have a president in Washington that stands unequivocally with Israel, with no light between Benjamin Netanyahu and the uh, American president. I agree with that. We must stand and, with Israel. We must stand yeah. with Israel. I agree, I agree with you on that one for sure, Gene. And uh, I just, uh, yeah, I just uh, hope that this, that that the um, the more moderate uh, forces can can prevail in, in the Middle East, especially in the Islamic countries. I think that it has been too often the case that we in the West, whether it be uh, Americans, British, uh, Europeans, Russians, even that we've sided with the radical side of Islam and we have destroyed the more moderate side. I get into, for example, in my book, the fact that in 1919, the Emir Faisal, who was the head of, recognized as the head of Islam in his day, he's referred to himself as the director of Senator Muhammad, yep. he's a Hashemite. He, right. uh, he was also the king of Syria for, right after they were liberated from Turkey. He signed an agreement with Chaim Weitzman, which recognized Israel, and he said that uh, our, 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 we're brethren people and that our holy book recognizes Jewish sovereignty within the state of Israel and that uh, as long as the Israelis recognize and, and, and respect the, the Muslim minority, we expect to go forward into modern times as peaceful people together, and we expect to create modern nations with modern economies. And I think that his view 
was very popular amongst many Muslims, especially after World War One. What happened was that uh, the West sided with the Mufti in 1920, yes. and they yes. got rid of they got rid of Faisal. So my, yes. my point is that we have sided with the wrong side. We have encouraged the radicals. That's what I, that's what I said earlier. For example, what was wrong with Mubarak in uh, Egypt? He was a moderate, no, if you'd call absolutely. it that, non-jihadist Islamic. Well, that's, so we that's have overthrown him but, and but put the – we filled the, we fill the rooms, as I call it, uh, with the jihadists. Yeah, but my whole point in discussing this with you is that there is a possibility for a moderate Islamic movement that, that can come up if we foster it instead of undermining it. All right, anyway, let me ask Dean, you one very serious question yes. from my standpoint, Chuck. How do you propose yes. doing that? By supporting the people who are interested in peace and destroying the people who are interested in fighting us. It's well, that it goes back to my thesis. That's how the Israelis do it. The it Israelis, goes back to my thesis. There are five questions I ask any Muslim. And those five questions, do you read the Quran? Do you try to obey the five pillars of your faith? Do you uh, have your Friday prayers? Do you believe that you should obey the Quran? Do you believe that Allah and Muhammad's words are the final word to be obeyed? And if they answer those five questions, yes. Chuck, listen. If they well, answer those five questions, yes, they are not a moderate Muslim. Uh, well, again, I mean, it depends on how you you follow the Quran. And, and you're right, most of them are not. But... The Israelis have done this in that they have have held a olive branch of peace to to peaceful Muslim nations and peoples. And they've what have gone they gotten in return? Those, well, they they've gotten some return. they've gotten somewhere. But the point they've is they've got more retaliation, more bombing, and a yeah. But the point is that the, those who neck. are their enemies, they go after them one by one, and they carefully take them out. And it may take a hundred years, it may take a thousand years, but ultimately the the radicals will be defeated. Anyways, uh, Gene, we've reached the end of the program. The book I'm praying is, that you're right, brother. <laughs> okay. Is Islam, is Islam tolerant? Uh, Gene Youngblood is my guest. Gene, where do people get the book? You can call 1-800-GO-BIBLE. 1-800-GO-BIBLE. That's right at the receptionist desk at the university. Uh, she will take name, address, telephone number, and your charge card information. You can order it directly from the bookstore here on campus, or you can go to any of the online bookstores, uh, Amazon, uh, CDB, any of them online. It can be found online, or you can call directly here. If you order it directly here, she can take the order, and it can go out uh, by mail the next day. All right, Gene. Thanks so much for joining me. That pretty Thanks, much Chuck. Have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank God you. willing, I shall return tomorrow at the usual time. Have a good afternoon, everybody.